You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And today's topic is the 1984 film, 1984. <laughs> so I was wondering, like, yeah, they bet, bet you when that year was coming around, somebody said, we got to make a movie about 1984 with the, the opportunity is too good to pass. Yes, right? it is. And it's, it's a once in a millennium opportunity, yes. too. I, th- I feel like I'm a, the plot summary, even if you've... Because this is, I'll, I'll fully admit a guilt I have. I'm uh-huh. 30 years old, and up until a couple of weeks ago, I had never read 1984. <laughs> and one of the most classic novels ever written. I never read it. It wasn't part of my curriculum in high school. I had the, I did buy the book because I always wanted to read it. I bought it in high school, yeah. and it sat on my shelf for 12 years before I finally decided to read it. <laughs> See, that's a good thing about the the discipline of doing a show, bi-weekly show, is it forces you to do things you wouldn't normally do. Yes. yes. Uh, it, it, I feel somehow everybody knows the novel, 1984. They yeah. know George Orwell wrote it, mm-hmm. and they have, even if they've never don't know the main plot they have you know big brother is watching you everybody knows that phrase even if they've never read the book yeah you know it's a totalitarian state and there's things such as you know they the uh double think and mm-hmm. new speak right. and all those uh phrases that have now used in lexicon for pop culture ever since the book came out yes yes and people are aware of what the what the generally what those concepts signify but even if they aren't Aware, I think you're a typical case yes. of uh, uh, the, the the actual story in the novel, which I think is actually quite interesting because it does it does uh, obviously with it's it's obvious you don't even have to say it it does it does present a commentary on the totalitarian mindset, but it also on the other side gives you a great. Um, portrait of the subjective side of what it would be like to live in a society that sets about to be perfectly totalitarian and uh, it's interesting because it uh, it was created when we were kind of on the cusp technologically of being able to pull something like this off so you you have um, elements in the novel that if it were written to be 2084 (laughs) or something like that would be even more exaggerated. And what Orwell does is a, he does a great job of showing how the there's a concomitance between the uh, surveillance technology. That, uh, remember, he's, he's writing this in the late 40s, right? So television was already experimental at that point and soon to be common. And uh, also two-way video communications and and also uh, essentially bugging uh, was technology that was in its early stages at this point. So he incorporates that into this totalitarian society. But it's only one side of the uh, surveillance state. The other side is um, the uh, uh, recruitment of the human beings that are citizens in that uh, surveillance state to 
also pay, take part in that surveillance. And there he does a great job, I think, uh, because he's he's got Stalinist Russia in mind. Um, but he does, uh, and that's the basis for the the uh, hypothetical world he creates. But he also does a good job, I think, of kind of projecting into the future because there's there are elements of Oceania, the state that's um, Winston is a part of here, right? There's elements of uh, uh, the way this state um, indoctrinates uh, its citizens that are very reminiscent, not only of Stalinist Russia, but I think to a closer degree, Mao's China. And to make reference to a film we did a few films back, Paul Potts' Cambodia. And you have in those two states a um, uh, an attempt, a largely successful attempt, to uh, um, recruit citizens into spying on each other and essentially snitching on each other, even for the slightest things that could be interpreted as um, thinking wrongly, thought crime, right? Yes, thought crime, another uh, right. terminology. And he does a great job of, of like I said, drawing that per, uh, portrait of how paranoid you are in that culture. You, you, you see a few times Winston thinking that uh, uh, other O'Brien and some other people, by the way they're just very momentarily looking at him, that he might have screwed up because his facial expression isn't quite correct given the context. Happens a couple times with O'Brien. Happens a couple times with Julia. And uh, uh, on that basis, he's just more or less uh, uh, symptomatic and symbolic of the typical citizen in this uh, culture. They're deeply suspicious and paranoid of everybody else. And having to live like that all the time, and it's so bad in his case. I love the, I love that Orwell mentions this. It's so bad in his case that he fears falling to sleep, because when he is asleep, he may be not able to control, uh, perhaps speak speaking out loud as he's dreaming, and unintentionally saying something that will get him in trouble with Big Brother. And you can imagine everybody else in the society is thinking the same way. And everybody else in the society is thinking, I have to give every outward appearance of being totally enthralled with Big Brother and the war, uh, even though the, uh, the news presented and the information presented is by design inconsistent over time, right? At one point, they're at war in, uh, with Eurasia and are supposed to believe that they've always been at yes. war with Eurasia. East, East Asia, the other is the, is three a, main states in the world. Yes. East Asia is the other one, and they've always been their allies. Yeah, and then and then they switch that <laughs> literally in the novel on one point on a dime. Yeah, <laughs> in the very in, in in the very process of a big a public rally, and uh, uh, the people force themselves to do that double think you're 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 talking about. Um, try to convince themselves uh, of the, the the contrary of what they had believed literally moments before. Um, and that is that now they are at war with East Asia. And not only that, have always been at war with East Asia. And uh, I, I think that's the most striking thing about this novel and about the film. I think the film actually does a good job 
of capturing the interior life um, of Winston and Julia and O'Brien, um, which is no small feat given the uh, excellent uh, uh, level of having done that that is in the novel. But you have to you have to you have to realize in a novel it's easier to do that. It's easier to capture the interior life because you can literally write down the interior dialogue that the uh, person is undergoing. In film, you can't do that. Um, and still, I think they capture, the film does a good job of capturing that aspect of the novel and just the dreary, kind of the dreary nature of this world. Um, excellent job. Yeah, and you even talk about how there's this constant, you know, surveillance, and it even happens with the children because one of Winston's um, neighbors, mm-hmm. uh, Parsons, Parsons his daughter, because we see him early on, and he's bragging about how wonderful of a party member his daughter is, and she's like a little girl. Mm-hmm. She spied on somebody and had them rat, you know, had them ratted out and sent to the Ministry of Love, where they are tortured. Yes, and he was bragging about that, but then it turns on him later on as uh, Winston's brought in into the Ministry of Love. Parsons there, and he says, "I have been." I've committed thought crime, and I didn't even realize I was doing it. But, you know, they're always right. Yeah. My daughter was the one that ratted me out. I'm so proud of her. Yes, yes. Again, a portrayal of the thoroughgoing um, uh, invasion of the mind that this state is able to undergo. And the uh, large-scale success they have in imposing doublethink, (laughs) again, on the people. Yeah, the Parsons case is uh, a classic case of that. Absolutely. And you talk about how they, you know, their thing is he who control, it's who can, those who control the present control the past and those who control the past control the future. Mm-hmm. You say that we've always been at war with Eurasia. East Asia has always been our ally. And then they completely turn that around. And it's basically, if there was ever stories about that previous war, it's got to be yeah. gone because that's no longer yeah. relevant. Because the- we have to we have to remind people here that Winston works for the Ministry of Truth, which, as uh, O'Brien explains, is purposefully labeled to be uh, the exact opposite of what it actually does. It's like the Ministry of <laughs> the Love, minis- it's not about love, right? Exactly. So it's a ministry of systematic and uh, uh, permanent eradication of the truth, um, and so. Uh, again, they do a very good job here of explaining um, in a, a pre-computer world just the elaborate measures you would have to take to be able to actually have such a ministry. Um, you do need all of these functionaries, as we see in the film, hundreds and hundreds of them in cubicles. And they use a pneumatic system, which is, I think, kind of cool. And they are sent uh, small pieces of news from past editions of newspapers or transcripts of uh, radio interviews or whatever it might be, government uh, records as well, and given instructions on what needs to be changed in in light of the current uh, 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 preferred narrative, right? Um, So you see Winston doing this on uh, multiple occasions in the film, at the same time kind of watching his neighbors and watching them watch him to see if he's doing it correctly or not. Uh, That is directly inspired by Stalinist Russia. 
Um, you probably already know this uh, about Stalinist Russia, but they were quite famous for changing records mm -hmm. when uh, relatively important figures in the party fell out of favor. Uh, Trotsky's an example, right? And literally having photographs of these favored, uh, former favored individuals, maybe alongside Stalin, for instance, uh, airbrushed out yeah there's that famous po picture is i believe that was trotsky yeah i believe so okay. yeah I'm, I'm i'm not 100 percent sure but i'm pretty sure it was him uh, and uh, uh he he's literally erased from history or they try as best they can to do that and then you uh um what i like about that is as they're presenting the, the kind of the mechanics of this system, Winston being a small cog in the machine, at the same time, they take you inside the mind of Winston, especially when he's in these dialogues with O'Brien and uh, him asking kind of philosophical questions. Um, if if he, he wonders and uh, on more than one occasion, if what is counted as truth in every in the case of every person is what they believe to be true what they hold internally as being true and two people and he even actually puts this at some particular part in the book if two people if o'brien thinks x is true and i think x is true um when in fact at some point or another um out there in the objective world not x was true Right, but we have taken very careful pains to eradicate the existence of not X, either in records or uh, written records or video records or whatever. And we've also taken great pains to eradicate any and every person that might believe not X. And the only people that are left are people that believe X. Then he wonders, does that make it the case? that X is true, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's, it's kind of an interesting yeah, reflection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of an interesting reflection on a philosophical um, metaphysics a position in, in, in metaphysics called idealism, which is essentially the idea that, no pun intended, that the uh, um, uh, only things that truly exist are minds and the ideas that those minds have, right? Uh, most famously argued by, believe it or not, a bishop, Bishop Berkeley. The uh, uh, Bar Berkeley University was actually named after this guy, but he was a, a British philosopher, and he was an idealist. And uh, uh, that's one of the issues that comes up with the idealist position. You know, if really the only things that exist are minds and their ideas, then how is it can you, that you can account for uh, the common sense view we have that the world is objective and that it exists independently of your mind. You know, if you're looking at a chair and you turn away and you're not perceiving it and nobody else is perceiving it, we normally take it to be the case that the chair still exists, right? Um, well, the idealist has a hard time explaining that if he takes his position seriously. Um, so, uh, there's a very short answer to that question from Barclay was, well, you have one large uh, uh, omnipotent mind always perceiving these things. That is God, right? So God kind of preserves common sense, preserves our normal view that the world is objective, independent of our own existence. 
So they don't have that, obviously, in Oceania. I think, like the communist world, it's atheistic in nature. Um, um, so uh, you have uh, this very interesting question that arises here because they're so good at what they do, right? That uh, even though they're not technically idealists, they do believe the physical world is out there. Um, but they're almost like, they could be described as idealists with regard to history or the truth, so to speak. And they, uh, because they take these thoroughgoing efforts to erase all objective records and all objective facts that would be in conflict with their preferred narrative, um, it does lead you to think, like Winston does occasionally, well, you know, if, if literally all there is is um, consensus between people and what they believe to be true, uh, and there's no way to cross-check those against any kind of objective record, then are we stuck with, do we have to fall back on this kind of quasi-idealist position? And you see him being very ambivalent about this throughout the novel, but even to some extent in the film, where sometimes he rebels against, against that. No, God, gosh darn it, <laughs> the, the truth is out there. It's objective. It has nothing to do with what we believe or think. Hopefully we believe or think as the truth is, but uh, uh, there's a fundamental distinction between the two. And he and O'Brien go back and forth on that precise issue during the torture sessions. And you, going back to what you said earlier about the Stalinist you know, parallels, uh, he go, it, the, probably one of the more often brought up quotes in the novel is, the, uh, is every record has been destroyed or falsified, every book rewritten, Every picture has been repainted, statue and street building has been renamed, every date has been altered, and the process is continuing day by day and minute by minute. History has stopped. Nothing exists except an endless present in which the party is always right. Yes. And it, it, when you see, bring up parallels to current situations in America, whether it's taking down of Confederate statues or censoring books that from people may feel has offensive language, particularly racist language, or mm -hmm. outdated beliefs on you know, sexism or whatever. Yeah. That quote is always used by people who are against that. Yeah. And it, sometimes I, I do agree, particularly with the usage of books, when they are just saying, okay, we find this offensive. All for old editions that have that language, mm -hmm. let's just throw that out there and just have these new ones where we make it more politically correct. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you there. I, I actually... And don't agree with that. I'm troubled by that. The, the, the original works are the original works. And I think uh, you run the danger if you start editing these. Notice without authorial consent, first of all, because yes. sometimes the authors are, are deceased, naturally. But even if they weren't, um, once you go down that path... At some point, as we see in the film, uh, you realize it's going to imp be impossible to ever get at the actual text, the original text. It is going to be forever lost. And that's what troubles um, uh, Winston the most in this film uh, as, he, as he meditates on the nature of this state. We're, we're going to lose forever the actual past. Um, you give this system a long enough time and the fact that people are mortal, people will die off that knew the original truth, right? 
and notice he there's a few characters that are older in the novel that he almost has kind of a wistful nostalgia for and almost an envy for because some of the proles but also uh the the gift shop owner before he realizes he turned him in um he's he's a little envious of their ability to uh, still be in a position to remember the world as it actually is or was as opposed to what the state is presenting to them and that's the kind of fear i think that as you're well grounded in we don't want to get into that position with works of literature because you know what you can look at almost every work of literature and find something offensive in it that in 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 the light of your present po- political uh, proclivities you might think it's it's well advised to take it out right that's never going to stop people are going are if if anybody believe has the naivete to believe that their position is going to be the last and fully enlightened position in the history of the world on regard in regards to political matters or uh, uh, racial matters or you name it right they're being terribly naive mm-hmm. you know jump 50 years into the future and you're going to look like you're the blinkered and bigoted person that you're taking people from 50 years previous to you as, as being so they're going to change your your uh, versions of novels or whatever also so i think it's best and i'm surprised it's such an issue honestly i just think it's best to stick with the original works and and discuss it discuss it or just like with the cartoons of the looney tunes yeah some of them were mainly during world war ii there were offensive depictions of japanese people um you know, the crows and Dumbo are always considered very stereotypical of African Americans. Yep. Put a disclaimer. Just say heads up. This is some of this stuff may be offensive, and they do that. And they say, but would we rather show it to you with this context than just acting like it didn't happen? Yeah. Yeah. And particularly, at least Warner Brothers is not to go on a rant about animation, but mm-hmm. more infamously, Disney has always refused to do any releases or of Song of the South. Yes, they've tried to act like that movie never existed. Well, yeah, there's stuff in there that's pretty dated, and can't I wouldn't I would understand if somebody would find that offensive. You shouldn't still shouldn't bury it like it just didn't exist. No, it's it's actually an opportunity to discuss the views of the time that are uh, the presuppositions of the time that are uh, in that film. And also, I mean, there's nothing wrong with a society patting itself on the back occasionally saying, look, we've come a long way since then, right? You don't have the ability to pat yourself on the back if you erase the past, right? And act like it never occurred, right? We, we have, and, and I would say that, that that's the same uh, thing, I, I believe, to be the case about Civil War era statues and so forth. Um, yes, maybe they should not be in prominent uh, public places, uh, but you certainly shouldn't destroy them. I think, and some people have advocated for that. Um, that, I think, goes down a dangerous road. You, you, you can't erase the past. And attempting to erase the past is the wrong, precisely the wrong, wrong way to react to it. You have to be fully cognizant of it. You have to be able to discuss it. And you have to be able to, again, I say, uh, realize that from our present point of view, the mere fact that we can see the objectionable nature of those things from the past is a good indicative of our progress 
And we, 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 we rob ourselves of that opportunity by trying to uh, uh, send all these things down the, the memory hole. I forget. What is the thing where they burn the documents in the, in the novel? Uh, I forget the name. I forget the name of it, but you know, it's this kind of permanently going furnace, right? And every time Winston finishes uh, revising something, um, the uh, offending article is sent down to that furnace. Well, that's what these people are attempting to do with the past, and you shouldn't, you shouldn't do that. And uh, you brought up earlier once again more about Stalinist Russia, and it is interesting. You Orwell was very anti-Stalin, not only in this novel, but famously Animal Farm, yeah. which I just I also read that because I had never read it before <laughs> so finally, I was like, okay, finally got those two crossed off my list but, you know, you know uh, Napoleon was supposed to be, the pig is supposed to be Stalin and Snowball, who he betrays and kills but still portrays with the enemy, is supposed to be Trotsky, Yeah, and it was interesting he himself was a socialist yes he was he, wa- he fought like other left-wingers fought against the fascist Francisco Franco in the Spanish Civil War. Yeah. And it, but it, the fact that he was still able to speak out against Stalin because uh, comparing it to more recent movies, famously Oppenheimer dealt with that time period because Oppenheimer was left-wing. Yeah. And particularly Oppenheimer's friend, Econ Chevalier, was very pro-communist. And yep. If you read the book that Oppenheimer was based on, he defended Stalin even when all the stories of his... Of his uh, Atrocities. He's, he actively, he still defended him, saying, "Well, that didn't happen." Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, and so it makes you uh, want to ask. It, it, it would have been wonderful to jump back in time and ask Orwell, "Well, how can you con- be consistent in this regard? Um, uh, despise Stalin as you should. I mean, you're absolutely right in that regard, but also be a socialist. After all, he was an advocate of socialism, right? Uh, obviously." as you are apparently uh, inspired by the works of Karl Marx. So aren't you being inconsistent? And I don't know what the answer to that question is, but I think he might say something like this. He'd say, well, look, um, the state I'm presenting to you, either in Animal Farm or in uh, uh, 1984, is a state that is completely and almost perfectly totalitarian in nature. That's what Stalin wanted to do. I'm criticizing the totalitarian instinct in some people. It was also in uh, fascist uh, Italy, uh, Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, to a great extent, was the same way. There's some really harrowing books that uh, detail the uh, uh, thoroughgoing uh, attempts at indoctrination and education there that are not as well known as in the case of Nazi Germany or Stalinist Russia. Um, But that's not what I think. This is me with my George Orwell hat on, that is not what I think socialism is. For me, socialism essentially is just public ownership of the means of production. But well, I, I, I think you'd say it, that's, that's what I think needs to be done. Um, but that doesn't mean that uh, the citizenry cannot have and hold private property, right? So it's kind of socialism light. <laughs> um, that might be what he would have said. Um, but, you know, it's kind of curious. I would, I would like to see, it's too bad he didn't live into uh, uh, yeah, later than he novel. did. This was his last novel. It would be kind of interesting to see if he would have remained a socialist for a longer period of time after that. But he's criticizing, what's kind of interesting with the novel is he's criticizing it from, as it were, a somewhat sympathetic perspective being a socialist. Yeah. But I guess I should say this too. 
you notice in the novel, uh, uh, O'Brien cites earlier totalitarian states as having made fundamental mistakes, been naive in one certain regard that is certainly true with communists. Um, they really thought there would be a utopian into history that they would bring into fruition, right? And, and that, that provided them kind of a moral impetus for what they did. Um, O'Brien says, you know, we in Oceania, we're more honest about this. We don't think for a moment that there's going to be a utopian end to history where everybody will live in a land of plenty, milk and honey flowing everywhere. No, we don't believe that at all. Our intent is very simple. And I think he's capturing something that I think is true of the totalitarian psychology here, that uh, in effect, they use the promise of the utopian end to history as a uh, rationalization or an excuse for what they really want to do, which, as O'Brien puts it very plainly in the, in the uh, novel, exert power. Imagine a boot on your face. Right. This is what he says. He says, imagine the uh, future of human history that we want, we, that we want, our state wants. Imagine a boot crushing a human face forever. So it's just raw exercise of power. And I think what he's saying here is when push comes to shove, people like Stalin, people like Hitler, he, people like uh, Hirohito, or at least his military, um, people like Paul Pot, people like Ho Chi Minh, ultimately that's all they really wanted. And all this other stuff is just window dressing. And reading this, I guess when you think of other novels or stories about totalitarian states, I mean, they're... I think when this came out, uh, Brave New World was came out 15 years earlier. Everybody said, oh, well, you ripped off Huxley. <laughs> but um, also later stuff, uh, one of my favorite novels is Fahrenheit 451. You see a little bit of that in this one, how, you know, books are once again kind of considered dangerous in this movie. Yeah. And also, you know, early, you know more te- younger friendly stuff like Hung the Hunger Games. Yeah. There's always like Fahrenheit 451, it's always that hope of resistance. Like yeah. Hunger Games, it's Katniss Everdeen, she's leading the resistance against that state. Yeah, Fahrenheit 451. Montag, you know, joins joins the resistance, and they have this. They burn the books themselves, but they keep it in their minds. They're memorizing all the passages, and that has a shred of hope. And this yes. one, there is absolutely, absolutely no, no hope. They don't whatsoever. kill. I mean, the book and the movie. It almost feels like they're kind of suggesting they poison him, but in the novel, they don't kill Winston. They yeah. just torture him, and just by the end, have him so broken down and brainwashed that he loves big brother he no longer loves yeah. julia because he's willing to although he up. does have a very quick kind of vision of his future there toward the end of the novel doesn't he he sees himself and feels himself being shot in the back of the head remember that mm-hmm. so i i took that first time i read it i took that as a premonition that yes he will be killed because essentially o'brien promised it um and through the uh dialogue and monologue uh, between uh, uh, Julia and Winston, but also within Winston's own mind, they realize the inevitability of this. Anybody that has even the slightest inkling that the truth is something other than what the state presents, they kind of realize, well, I'm ultimately doomed. I am going to be killed. So I think, I mean, that's the less pessimistic. It's even... More pessimistic, I should say, than your reading of it, where he's been sufficiently brainwashed or cowed 
uh, into uh, being uh, an effortless double thinker, right? He's even beyond double think in some ways, right? At the end there. Um, but even, even more depressing, but also consistent with what we've been told through the whole novel as it develops is um, uh, uh, the fact that I, 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 think he, I think he is killed eventually. I really do. Yeah, because you can't have, according to O'Brien, you can't have anybody walking around with even the slightest inkling of old think, so to speak. And unfortunately, everybody always has it. It's, it to some extent, you can't eradicate it, as we saw in the case of uh, uh, Paul Pot, right? I think it was, uh, in, in, which, by the way, uh, uh, First, they killed my uh, father. It's a much more optimistic film, and her story is a much more optimistic film or, or story of, about humanity uh, but, uh, than uh, 1984. But the fact of that depressing ending actually, in some way, supports that ending, right? Because you can't quite eradicate an inkling that there is a truth there. But since you can't, and since this state is perfectly capable of wielding power forever and ever and ever, that inevitably means. Inevitably means people will be killed. Yeah. Well, because the whole thing is, because he's somewhat has an interest in the resistance because O'Brien in both novel and the movie kind of paints himself as like this secret underground resistance member. He meets him, he shares him this literature and kind of says like, we're this yep. vastly unconnected cells. And, but the, the main character is a guy named uh, Goldstein. Yes. And like, cause they are, every time people have this public viewing, there's like a, th- I forget, like hate time or uh, two minute hate, two minute hate. We're yep. basically, you see that in the movie, they just scream and yell, call him a traitor while they broadcast him. And we never meet Goldstein. Cause I have this somewhat feeling either a, they like, they kind of show an animal farm with the pig snowball that they killed him a long time ago. Yeah. Or B, he just was made up just so that they can have a symbol of hatred. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's left purposefully, uh, uh, less than ambiguous in the in the novel because O'Brien admits that the book that's allegedly written by Goldstein was written by a committee uh, of which he was a member, right? So yeah, he's a convenient fiction. It's kind of interesting too that he has a Jewish-sounding name. Um, I think there's an element there of critique of uh, the anti-Semitism that was in Stalinist Russia uh, as well as the just general uh, paranoia that. Stalin had uh, so the two minute hate actually uh, very interesting and it it made me think it it always makes you think of um, more current examples of something like that and I think with what's going on right now with Israel and Hamas I, I think you're seeing the the fruits there of uh, the kind of two minute hates that have been going on with uh, Hamas in in that Gaza area and actually been going on in for decades over there, uh, this just virulent hatred and projection of the most base motives on Jewish people. I think uh, I think that's um, a, what uh, Orwell gave us here uh, uh, is something that was fresh, a, a novel written freshly after World War II, was a warning that uh, you'd be foolish to think that this kind of thing has disappeared from the world because Nazi Germany has been uh, defeated. Uh, I point you in the way of Stalinist Russia. A lot of Jewish intellectuals were in the gulag system. George Orwell knew this, right? And this 
particular strain of hatred seems to be something that is persistent through history. And I think uh, uh, we see it in the in present um, present events there with Israel and Hamas. So uh, it's always useful to be reminded of this, although it is very depressing. One character we haven't really discussed yet is the uh, character of Julia. Mm-hmm. And what is interesting, because, you know, he sees her and she, there's a, she's a member of a group called the Anti-Sex League. And basically the, the idea of sexual intercourse in this is, compl- is going to soon be eradicated. Yep. Basically, birth will now just be artificial insemination. Mm-hmm. But when they start having this affair and this relationship, she says, you know, you're not the first one. Lots of inner party members I've had this affair with. And it, and it, it's supposedly both more so in the movie, it feels like you know, they try to make it as a love affair most more in the movie. But in the yeah. book, I got it more of it's just a fling for her. Yeah. More of because yeah. she says she's like she's had, she's done this hundreds of times. So it's yeah. Just, does she have a real emote, even though she wrote the thing, I love you, to Winston? Is it just more of a romantic uh, connection or physical attraction? I, I guess the answer with her is probably more physical. With Winston, it's definitely physical, too. Um, but I think there is a little bit more romance with him. Um, but I think the uh, message he's trying to get across here is um, the, uh, the efforts of this state to eradicate almost all vestiges of normal human experience except for hatred they want to they want to uh, um, make people fanatic supporters of this ongoing war remember they're doing the war so that they essentially can control the population using that rage and the two-minute hates and so forth so it doesn't serve their purpose if people are, as it were, distracted by other things, and especially distracted by attachments to other people to, to, toward whom they would be more loyal. So you can't have family, you can't have romantic attachments, and you can't even have sexual attachments because all of that distracts the citizenry from the role the state wants to put them in. So it's a natural reaction for human beings that are put in this kind of position to, as it were, go underground in those activities because you can't eradicate it. It's as much a feature of human being as is the fact that we need to breathe, we need to eat, well, we need companionship, and, and we have a sexual nature. And you can't, you can never eradicate that. So naturally, people will go underground to satisfy those things. So we see that in, the, in, these, in these two characters. And we also see a very interesting and related thing is this deep-seated need for privacy because this world is essentially unprivate. So where do they go? They go to this room above this uh, uh, informant's uh, gift shop. Of course, he didn't know it at the time, but there's no Big Brother screen there. At least they don't think there is one, right? So they're literally able to just uh, carry on a normal human companionship in that uh in that setting and it's the only place they can do it there's a couple of other places they go but it's the only place they can do it for any extended period of time under shelter right mm-hmm. um and i think o'brien and the state are, are quite well aware of the fact that this can't be eradicated right so they take advantage of the fact that they can put agents in place that will turn people in for doing these things as the gift shop owner does 
right? But you also see, even in O'Brien's case, he needs privacy too. He's able to turn off his telescreen. Um, so again, that's a fundamental feature of human psychology, uh, human moral psychology, human emotional psychology, that uh, these kinds of totalitarian states try to eradicate through indoctrination or uh, intimidation or torture or using starvation uh, or rearranging living um, living conditions, as we saw in the case of uh, the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot. It happened in China, it happened in Stalinist Russia, happened in Nazi Germany as well. Um, but in each case, and I think that's this might be the slightly hopeful um, aspect of 1984, in each case, they find that they can't eradicate it. So the best they can do is kill the people. Yeah. You see, with, they have the lower cat, lower class, they call the proles. The proles, yeah. Yes. They uh, pretty much almost are hands off with them. Yeah. They let them, they, they even write, you know, you see, they have, they have a porno sex. So they write, you know, dirty books for them. They yeah. have bars. They seem more or less normal. Yeah. It, but it is interesting. They are kept, they don't have much intellectual interest or thoughts about the governing system. Because yeah. One thing they don't show in the movie, but in the book, he goes to a bar there yep. and is trying to kind of, this guy older who's old enough to remember the times pre-Oceana, and he's trying to just get him to talk about it. Yeah, and the guy gets distracted by something he says and goes off on a completely different thing on yes. what he's asking. Yes. Now, this is the, the aspect of the film that made me think of uh, Huxley, because his dystopia is much more kind of like the, proletar- the proletarian here. <laughs> the proles in 1984, the state in his, uh, the the hypothetical state in his novel is one that makes use of pleasure and distraction to control the populace. So we see that here um, because people often contrast the two dystopias. Well, he's got elements of Huxley in his. And, you know, (laughs) right. And uh, um, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the purpose of the proles here is they kind of do the dirty work for the society, right? And then you have kind of the middle class or the second level uh, party members that Winston is an example. And then you have the few that are the higher level party members that O'Brien represents. Uh, so you still see, uh, interestingly, the same kind of class structures that all societies have. Um, and you, you, you see, unlike a, a um communist societies and no no naive belief that you can eradicate that and somehow it would be better for humanity it's unavoidable so what we have to do is just completely control it and with the proles they control it as uh, uh, Huxley suggests in uh, Brave New World and the uh, middle classes so to speak and the upper class they control them with uh, the kind of information manipulating and surveillance state that we see Winston subjected to, and even O'Brien. Okay, uh, getting close to the end of my questions, anything you want to bring up before we start signing off? I, I Just one, one quick observation. I think the film does a, a, a wonderful job of taking what uh, you imagine as you're reading this novel, right? the world as you imagine it and actually turning it into a, a production of film visually. Cause I, I don't know about you, but when, when I read that, when I way back, when I did read this novel in high school, I think it was high school. Gee, I've forgotten. Probably has arts magnet high school. We were always reading weird stuff at that high school. Um, 
shout out to Dallas Arts Magnet, Booker T. Washington High School. Great high school. Um, but um, I remember when I read it um, that the impression I got was a very, a very dark, kind of dank, and in a way relentless place. And also a, an, a, just an overriding sense of having absolutely no privacy. And that film really captures that quite well. And now that I've can cross those off my list, eventually we'll have to do The Great Gatsby, because I'll finally admit I've never read The Great Gatsby either. So. I have not either, so maybe we'll we need to do, to do this. Yeah. One of these days to finally cross that off our list. <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. You can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics, The Naval Warrior, and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, where each episode is dedicated to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at soundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker, and I need to remind you that the next film we'll be doing is an animated film from Disney, of all people. So we haven't done an animated film we're in a while. A bit, yeah, we're lightening it up, and it's it's a, it's a time travel story, which uh, in, engages some uh, paradoxes of time travel. It's called Meet the Robinsons. All right, so that'll be our next movie. This is Alex Baker saying... On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. You'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984.